Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the beautiful day that you've given us today. We're also thankful that we can come back again to study the Word of God. Lead us into all truth, for your Word is truth. Help us to see Jesus, for he is the truth. Come into our hearts and guide us, and lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our topic tonight is about a group of people who cause much speculation. And we're going to see what the Bible says. Let's see what the Bible has to say about the 144,000. Now, in November 24, 1971, two days, not two, one day before Thanksgiving, there were a group of people who were getting aboard an airplane in Portland, Oregon. One of them was a man by the name of Dan Cooper. Dan Cooper got on Northwest Orient Airlines, and he sat down in seat 18F. How many of you have ever heard of Dan Cooper? All right, some of you ahead of me. He was wearing a dark suit, a white shirt, a dark tie, and sunglasses that he never took off. And as he was boarding the plane, he handed the flight attendant a note. Well, she didn't open it right away. It wasn't until after the plane had left the ground. She opened it and read it. And this is what it says. Miss, I want you to come and sit next to me. I've got a bomb and you're being hijacked. Well, Dan Cooper demanded $200,000 and four parachutes. And he wanted the, the airline to provide them. Well, by the time they reached Seattle, they had the money and the parachutes for him. He let one of the flight attendants off and 36 passengers. And after they had what they needed, he demanded that the plane be flown to Mexico. En route, they stopped in Reno for fueling. And as they were about to come into the area of Reno, the pilots noticed on their Boeing 727 aircraft that a light went on. And that meant that the rear door had been opened. And the back of the plane, the door had a kind of a slope that went out of it. Dan Cooper, better known in history today as D.B. Cooper, he jumped out of the plane at a freezing uh, altitude of 10,000 feet in a freezing rainstorm. He disappeared with the money and with two parachutes. Now the question is, whatever happened to D.B. Cooper? Well, in 1980, an eight-year-old boy found 6,000 of those dollars along the bank of the Columbia River. It led many to believe that Cooper was killed. Others concluded that he had indeed made it, and he had opened the package that had the money in it. But whatever it was, nobody could identify who D.B. Cooper was or what happened to him. As a matter of fact, one man, when he was on his deathbed, he told his wife, I am D.B. Cooper. His wife was very upset at that. And his last words before he died, he told her a lie. Because in doing tests on the man, they discovered that indeed he was not D.B. Cooper. He was someone else. To this day, we still don't know who Cooper was. But you know, in the Bible, we have a group of people 
that a lot of people want to try to identify. We have 144,000, and people are constantly speculating who are the 144,000. Well, let's see what we can find out from the scriptures. As we open Revelation and as we open the scriptures itself, we find that Revelation 7 tells us this in verses 1 through 4. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to, to harm the earth, the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees. Why? Until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Okay? So, these angels are holding back the four winds of strife. The, the winds of conflict that were going to blow on the earth. And he said, don't let the winds loose until we have sealed these people in their foreheads. So these people apparently are the people who are sealed with the Spirit of God in the Scriptures. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. So, who are the 144,000? It's the number of those who are sealed. And it goes on to say, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So, it's quite a, a vast number. It takes us back to the time of the Old Testament. You need to remember that in the time of the Old Testament, when God gave the commandments to the children of Israel, there were 12 tribes. 12 tribes who were the sons of Jacob. Jacob, when he was born, they named him, they named him what? Jacob for a reason. What does the name Jacob mean? Anybody remember? I can't hear you. It was the supplanter, the deceiver, the trickster. Okay? Why? Because his brother Esau, he tried to be born before Esau did, if you recall. And all through his young life, he played tricks on Esau, even getting away the heritage, the birthright from Esau. And so, Jacob had some definite character flaws. But when he fled from his brother Esau and he had to flee for his life, that's when he saw the dream of the ladder going back and forth from earth to heaven and angels going back and forth on it. When he woke up, we find that he found himself, he thought, being attacked. Someone had a hold of him. And he started to wrestle. It says in one place that he wrestled with an angel, but in another place it says he wrestled with God. The angel was probably Michael, the archangel, who is identified as the Son of God. And he's wrestling with the angel. And the angel, when he sees the sun coming up, he said, let me go, I, I have to leave. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And what did he tell him would be his blessing? He changed the name of Jacob to what? Israel. Which means a prince with God. Okay? So he went from Jacob the trickster to being a prince with God, in the eyes of God. Why? 
because his character had changed. I don't recall if I mentioned to you earlier, but your name, in the scriptures anyway, a name was a description of a person's character. I had a neighbor when I was growing up, and I shouldn't tell you this, I don't remember if I did or not, but his real name was Bill, but we called him Banana Nose. Now, can you imagine why? You see, it was a characteristic that he had. And a characteristic of Jacob was that he was a deceiver, a trickster, and dishonest. But he had a heart that God could work with. And God changed his character. And he became a prince with God. Now notice that the term Israel, in that case, applied to a man. Right? But, as time went on, Jacob, or Israel, had 12 children. And those 12 children became the sons of Israel. Collectively, they were called Israel. Right? So, what the man was, the name that applied to the man also applied to the children. And as we look at the scriptures, we find in uh, Exodus 4, 22, it says here, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now stop and think about that. Esau was born before Jacob was. You see, well, is God getting mixed up here? He doesn't know which one's the oldest? No, he says he is my firstborn. The term firstborn doesn't necessarily mean the chronological birth order. Firstborn means the the position, the prominence. As I mentioned before, President Obama and his wife They are the first family in America. But they weren't here before George Washington and Martha, you see. It's not the chronology. It is a title. It's a position, the preeminent one. Jesus is also called the firstborn of the grave. Well, there were others who came out of the grave before Jesus did. What about Lazarus? You see, but of all who were in the grave, he was the preeminent one that came forth. And so we find that the title Israel is my firstborn is referring to the nation that he brought out of captivity. You see, he brought out and delivered them. Is God going to bring out and deliver a people at the end of time? Not necessarily from Egypt and slavery, but is he going to deliver a people from sin? Is he going to deliver them to eternal life? And we find that Israel as a whole understood that God was calling them for a special purpose. That purpose was to take the knowledge of the true God to the world. It's very interesting that the place he put them is right in the crossroads of three major continents. The traffic goes back and forth through there. If you want to go to Asia from Africa, you go right through the Holy Land. If you want to go from Europe by land to Africa, you go down through the Holy Land. If you wanted to go from Europe to Asia Minor and across, you went down through the Holy Land. That section was important. And guess who had a monopoly on it? The Canaanites did, who were worshippers of Baal and heathen gods. So what does that mean? That means that as 
people came trafficking through there, they would pick up these ideas of Baal worship and they would carry Baal worship to the far parts of the earth. And God says, no, I'm going to take them out of there and I'm going to put a godly people there. And these godly people will be an object lesson and they will share their faith so that the gospel can go to the world just like Baal worship was doing. And so God had to bring his people out of Egyptian bondage and bring them into the promised land. In the last days, God is going to bring a group of people out of the bondage of sin. He's going to make them the object lessons for the world of their faith. And he's going to bring them into the heavenly promised land. And so we see there are parallels between these. Now, sadly, Israel, especially when they came back from Babylonian captivity, before the Babylonian captivity, they were adopting the gods that they were supposed to be replacing. They were adopting the idolatry of the heathen around them. And so God had to bring them into Babylonian captivity until they repented. And then when they came back to the Holy Land again, they said, oh boy, we're not going to make that, that mistake twice. We're not going to go into idolatry again. And the best way to keep from doing that is don't go out of the house. Right? And so what did they do? They isolated themselves from the very people that they should have been witnessing to. Do you ever stop to think that Christians have that same problem sometimes? We either want to adopt all the things of the world or we want to separate ourselves from the world. Don't contaminate me, you see. And finally... The Lord says, look, I'm going to give you 490 years to fulfill the commission of taking the gospel to the world. And if you're not going to do it, why, I may have to give it to another people who will convert you to your own gospel. To convert you to your own Messiah. Your own scriptures and commission." Do you ever stop to think that the Lord has called us today to call the Jewish people back to their own Bible, to their own Sabbath, to their own God, to their own commandments, to their own Messiah, when they were the ones who were supposed to bring us to it, you see. And it would become a worldwide mission outreach God had great plans for the children of Israel and great blessings if they fulfilled that promise. In Matthew 21, it tells us about a vineyard and that a, a wealthy man had a vineyard. He was a king. He was going to have his tenants take care of his vineyard. And what did they do? instead of caring for it, which they thought that it belonged to them. And he said, well, I'll send my prophets, I'll send my servants to talk to them. What they do, they killed them. Finally, what does he do? He sends his own son, and they end up killing him. And in the scriptures, Jesus tells them, this is you, the Jewish leaders, you were just the stewards of God's property. Remember when we were talking about health? The scripture says, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. People say, well, huh, I, I don't owe anything to anybody. I, I'm a self-made man. If you're a self-made man, you have a very poor creator. 
right? I think God could do better than that. God wants to remake us, you see. And because instead of being just stewards of God's, they thought that it belonged to them. And they even ended up killing the Son of God. Let's look at Matthew 21, 43 and 44. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Remember, by their fruits you shall know them. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. If we fall on the rock of our salvation, God can bless us. He will, he will change our heart. He will give us a new character. But if we resist him, we will come up on the short end. Let's look further. Matthew 2.15 That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now stop and think. The children of Israel were in Egypt and God called them out to the promised land. Remember when King Herod had heard from the wise men that a king was born. He didn't want any competition. He didn't want anybody competing for his throne. So he sent forth an order to kill all the children because he knew that this way he would eventually strike the one that was the Messiah. But what did God do? God revealed to Joseph in a dream. And he says, get up and get out of town real fast. Take Mary and Jesus with you and go to Egypt. And they went down to Egypt until it was safe. And then, what does it say? It says that an angel came to him and said, come on back out of Egypt and back to the promised land again. So, we find this, out of Egypt I called my son. Just like out of Egypt I called the Israeli people. I am now calling the spiritual Israel, the true Israel. That Jesus is the ultimate Israel. I'm calling him out of Egypt and back to the promised land. Notice what it says. He was actually uh, referring to Hosea 11.1. 1. And it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So we find that he calls both Jesus and he calls Israel out of Egypt. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. Notice what it says. This new Israel. When the Jewish nation rejected Jesus. Now, notice what I said. I was careful about the words I used. The Jewish nation rejected Jesus. Not the Jewish individual people. The Jewish nation rejected him. Just like not all Germans killed Jews during the Second World War. But the German nation was responsible. The leadership, you see. And because of this, God called another group of people. And the Jews no longer had exclusive right to take the gospel to the world. God is an equal opportunity employer. Now Jews and Gentiles, if they have made a commitment to the Lord, they are called to work for the Lord. I want you to know that when you give your heart to the Lord, He doesn't call you to warm a pew. He calls you to ministry. Now you don't have to be an ordained minister. God has called you to the priesthood of believers. He has called you to be his witnesses. Maybe just your kids or your husband or your wife. 
you are called to a ministry to try to lead them to the Lord and to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. And notice, there is neither Jew nor Greek, that means Gentile, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, our pedigree will not bring us salvation. The Jewish people thought, well, I'm a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, I, I've got a monopoly on the kingdom. Your pedigree won't help you. God says, give me your heart. This is what he's after, the heart of the people. And basically speaking, in modern terminology, that's your mind. That's your thoughts. That's why the scripture says, may the, the mind of Christ be in you. He wants, what was the mind of Christ? It was obedience to the Father. He wants a people who are obedient. He wants, people don't want to hear a sermon, they want to see a sermon. You see what I'm saying? He, he wants, they want to see a sermon. And that's why, because there are so few sermons given to our young people in the lives of those about them that our young people go seeking after other models, chasing after false religions and philosophies because Christians are not living up to it. Gandhi once said, I have no problem with Jesus Christ. I have no problem with Christ. My problem is with Christians. Think on it. It wasn't Jesus he had a problem with. He admired Jesus. But if it didn't work for his followers, why should he buy it? I've got a good deal for you. Uh, I've got a box of light bulbs up here. What do the light bulbs run now? What's it cost for pack of light bulbs. Somebody tell me. Nobody buys light bulbs. <laughs> Let's say the I'll, I'll sell them to you for 50 cents a bulb. How's that? Is that a decent price? Huh? Way under price? Alright. I'll sell you my light bulbs for 50 cents a piece because that's a good deal. I'll sell you the whole box at 50 cents a piece. However, I should tell you, there's one slight problem. On the way in, I tripped and dropped the box. And every one of them got broken. But I'll, I'll bring the price down to 25 cents a piece. How many of you are going to buy my light bulbs? Nobody? Such a good deal as that? You see, nobody has a use for broken light bulbs. Why should I, as a Jew, or as a Muslim, or as Gandhi, who was a Hindu, why should I buy Jesus Christ as my Savior when you, his representatives, you Christians, if he doesn't work for you, why should I buy him? You see? So what is hindering the world coming to Jesus Christ? It's Christians. The devil can work harder and more effectively by working within the church sometimes than he can without the church. And this is what the 144,000 is all about. These are people who stood up when it was tough to do so. And as Christ is lifted up, like it was in the wilderness, as Christ is lifted up, he says, I will draw all men unto myself. What did the 144,000 do? They stood up for Christ. They lived for him. They were obedient to him. Their faith was pure. And because of this, People were drawn to him. Notice that Abraham was the father of the faithful. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. 
If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, as far as I know, I don't have a drop of Jewish blood in me. My ancestry is basically Celtic. And we Scotch-Irish, you know, we're a rowdy bunch sometimes. And as far as I know, I don't have a drop of Jewish blood in me. But you know what? I am adopted. I am adopted into the family of Abraham, who was the father of the Jews, you see. Those of you who were born naturally, you know, your parents had to take what they got, right? But if you are adopted, you're different. You're special because you're chosen. They didn't have to take you. They chose you. That makes you, makes you feel pretty good, doesn't it? You see. Because you are desirable to them. And God says, look, you aren't the literal uh, descendants of Abraham, but I am adopting you into my family. When I'm not studying Jewish history, I'm studying Celtic history. And I know the gods of my Celtic ancestors. And you know what? I don't have a right to the kingdom of God by chasing after the things they used to. I mean the druids and human sacrifice and all that kind of stuff. But you see, this Bible was meant for the Jewish people so that they could perfect the character of Christ to take to the world. The Messiah was for the Jewish people for salvation. When I say that, I say he's for the whole world. But you see, because they didn't accept him, now I have a chance to accept him. I have a chance to be adopted into Abraham's family, and I get all of the uh, blessings of the promise that was theirs. Now let's look at Romans 2, 28 and 29. He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And that circumcision is that of the heart. God wants to change our hearts. He wants to change our mind. That's what circumcision actually was meant to mean, that you were separate from the world, you see. What does God want to change? He wants to change the inward man, not the outward man. Now, it says he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. What is that saying? Let's use more modern truths. He is not a Christian, which is one outwardly, but he's a Christian, which is one inwardly. You see what I'm saying? Abraham was the father of the faithful. And notice what Paul says in Romans 9, 6. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. What is saying is they are not all Christians who claim to be Christians. You see? Just because your name is out of the books of the church doesn't mean you're a Christian. It's whether or not you are attached to the true Israel, the true Son of God, the Messiah, okay? You need to remember that in, in ancient times when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt, Moses and Aaron were among the children of Israel who came out, right? And, bless their hearts, I'm sure that in the kingdom, God will have a place for them. But don't forget, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were Israelites who also came out. But what happened to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? Because of their rebellion, 
the Lord opened the ground and swallowed them up. So, even in ancient Israel, what is it? Righteousness by faith. Those who believed in God, those who trusted him and were obedient to him, those are the ones he blessed. And even ancient Israel, those who were disobedient were destroyed. And the same is true with Christians today. There are those who claim to be Christians, but are they truly of Israel? Are they truly Abraham's children? Look in John eight thirty nine. It says, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. So basically, what are we saying here? An apple tree produces apples because it's an apple tree. Not to prove itself to be an apple tree. If you have to run around hanging crosses on you you and putting uh, Jesus loves me on your bumper sticker to prove you're a Christian, people want to see it in your life. They don't want to see it on the bumper of your car. They want to see it in your life. I remember one lady was telling me that she drove up behind a car and she saw a bumper sticker. It says, honk your horn if you love Jesus. She read it. And so she leaned out her horn. All of a sudden, the man in the car got out, came back to her, and started to swear her and curse her out. And what do you mean blowing that horn at me? What's the matter with you? And she said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. And she pointed to the bumper sticker. I was just obeying what it said on there. Apparently, it must be your wife's car. (laughs) He looked at it, and his face turned red, and he got back in the car. You see, what are people seeing when they see you? In Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 3, it says... Now it shall come to pass when you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. When they repented, the Lord brought them back from the Babylonian captivity and they also came out of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 31 through 3 it says, And have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, when they went into Babylonian captivity, they were scattered among the nations that made up the uh, Babylonian Empire and the Assyrian Empire, too. But what did God do at the end of the captivity time? He brought them back, those who had repented, those who were sincere. They were called a remnant. Now, remember Noah? Noah had a remnant, didn't he? Out of all the people of the world, how big was the remnant? Eight people. That's not much. There were those who never came back from Babylon. Never came back from Assyria either. But there were a remnant who came back, and God blessed them. And God's looking for a remnant people in these last days. Then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000, having their father's name written on their foreheads. What did we talk about that before? What does the devil want to put in your forehead? The mark of the beast, right? So these people must have on their foreheads the seal of God. You see, they are in obedience to God, living for him. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters. That means that it, you know, thunder, it kind of rolls out, you know. And when God speaks, you know, you could hear this rumbling type sound. From heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder, And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, the song before the throne. Now, what was the song that they were singing? 
for before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. Oh, so that means that they were all monks and nuns, right? Now, folks, we're talking in symbolic language. A woman represents a church. It represents a religion. And we find here, they were not defiled with chasing after women, chasing after other gods and philosophies. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit. Now, deceit, that reminds me of Jacob, doesn't it? He was the deceiver. Who changed? No longer are they deceitful. They are now princes with God, you see. Their characters have changed. They have been redeemed because they have repented. No matter what your sins are, you repent and God will redeem you. Christ will redeem you. They are the first fruits. Now, the first fruits meant the down payment on others who would follow him. For they are without fault before the throne of God. Why are they without fault? Because the Lord has put pardon next to their name. And there's no evidence against them in the judgment. There's no evidence. So who are the 144,000? They have the Father's name. They are redeemed from the earth. They are not defiled spiritually. They are pure. Without fault. Because of their relationship with the Master. It is because of Christ that we are faultless. And there's 144,000 of them, it says. Now, this number is probably figurative. But are these the people who were resurrected from the grave? It didn't say that, though, did it? It didn't say that. It said that these were sealed in their forehead. In plain words, these are the ones who resisted the mark of the beast, overcame the mark of the beast, and received the seal of God. So they must have been alive. They apparently were alive in this conflict when the, the, uh, the beast pours out his mark. Notice what it says in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. These are repentant people. You know what, folks? You may have been a sinner, but now you're a saint. Think on it. Think on it. Name-wise, I don't know who the 144,000 is. You know, maybe some of you are among the 144,000. All I know is that these are the ones who have given their hearts to the Lord. That picture that I just had on there a minute ago, it makes us realize that we have a need to guard the avenues of the soul. How much do we see on television that leads to our corruption? What you see, it doesn't take you long to do it. There was an experiment done with children. And they took the same age group of kids. They let one group watch some cartoons that were very violent. And the other group, they had them draw and sing and do other things. And then later on, they gave them both uh, a test to see what effect it had on them. They found that the ones who were watching the TV, all they could talk about was violence. All they could talk about were corrupt things. And it took them a long time before those kids would calm down 
and be able to think more seriously. We need to guard the avenues of the soul. And it's around us even as adults, let alone children. And by beholding, you become changed. What you watch, what you hear, the type of music that you listen to, all of these things together play a part in either sanctifying us or leading to corruption. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it says, But we all, with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So by beholding, we become changed, either into the likeness of Christ or into the likeness of Satan. And I already mentioned about the music factor, but look here. In Philippians 4.8 it says, Whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. What is he saying? Control your mind, you see. We are to resist and turn away from those things that would corrupt us and make us unfit for the kingdom of God. And 1 John 2.19, again we read, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of this world. Do you realize that there were three things when our first parents, especially Eve, when she was deceived, she looked at the fruit. And I imagine she was, it was about lunchtime, I imagine she was hungry. So it looked good to eat. And she was also thought, oh, man, he said that I would have all kinds of wisdom. Boy, that, that makes me feel good. And it probably, the fruit was probably good to look at. And so she plucks it and eats it and sin enters the world. Jesus, when he was battling in the wilderness against Satan, Jesus was tempted by Satan with the same temptations, little variation in how he did it, but the same type of temptations in the wilderness, and Jesus resisted them all. He undid what Adam and Eve did. It was the reverse of it. Just like I said, death is the reverse of creation. Jesus and his temptations, his victory, was the reverse of Adam and Eve's failure. And so what is he saying? He's saying, we're going to be tempted by these things, but they are not of the Father. They are of the world. This is what the 144,000 is. They keep the commandments of God because they love him. They keep the commandments of God because it's the right thing to do. My friends, what about you? What about me? You are chosen. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are the spiritual Israel of God. When you are in Christ, you are in God. And you are to proclaim his praises to eternity. Only the 144,000 can sing the particular song before the throne of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the Lord of peace himself sanctify you. That means make you holy. Sanctify you how much? Completely. Mind, body, our thoughts, our spirit our whole being. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he wants for you and me. Jesus is coming in the clouds. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to be able to look up and say, the character that I have is harmonious with the character of, of Jesus. Jesus wants to be sure that you are safe to have in the kingdom of God. 
Think on that. That you are safe to have in the kingdom of God. Why? Because Satan was in the kingdom of God. Look at all the trouble he made up there. He does not want sin to arise a second time. In closing, I'd like to share just a short little story. There was a king who had a brand new chariot and he wanted just the right chariot driver. And so he interviewed three men and he asked them a simple question. He said, how close to the edge of a cliff can you take me when you're driving my chariot? And the first charioteer said, Your Majesty, I'm an excellent driver. I can bring you within six inches of the edge. The second one said, Your Majesty, I can bring you within three inches of the edge. That's how accurate I am. Finally, he turned to the third one and said, what about you? He said, your majesty, I will keep you as far from the edge as I possibly can. What do you think Jesus wants to do with us? He wants to keep us as far from the edge as possible. Don't you think that what we say, what we do, even the way we dress, even what we talk about, should it not glorify God? That's his will. And my friends, in so doing, we will be in harmony with the character of the 144,000. Who they are, we'll have to wait and find out. But we do know that because of the victory that they gained through Christ, they will go with him and be his royal entourage through all eternity. May you be among them. How many of you would like to be among the 144,000? Praise God. Praise God. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll be with us each. Help us to surrender to you. And Lord, if it be your will, may we be among the 144,000. We know there'll be a vast multitude who will also be saved. But Lord, how wonderful it would be to be among those who go with Christ everywhere he goes. We thank you for your blessings. Come into our hearts and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.